we live in a hectic age. We live in a time when increasingly extreme groups call for increasingly unquestioned and total allegiance, as if the fate of the world hinged on their particular cause, or at least your particular life hinged on their particular product or cause. From the emails in our inboxes to the tweets on social media to the cable news at night, we're regularly summoned to give our all for various causes. So T-Mobile commercials reveal the perils of life with Verizon. What disasters might come upon you if you don't switch plans? Political candidates warn of the dire consequences of allowing their opponents in power if we don't fundraise and march and campaign and vote vigorously enough. Even the NFL insists that you have to get all the latest Patriots gear if you want to show you're a true fan. Are we really meant for nothing more than to be devoted consumers of a particular brand? Should we content ourselves with giving our all for the latest political candidate or ballot item? Or might we be summoned to give our all to something higher? To help us answer these questions, we'll be in Mark chapter 12 this morning. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit at Jesus' baptism. And then over the past 12 chapters, Jesus has authoritatively healed and taught and worked miracles. He's astounded the crowds, infuriated the religious leaders, and shown tender compassion to those in need. Though many thought he was merely an impressive prophet, or perhaps a powerful miracle worker, since chapter 8, Jesus has you know, climactically and dramatically revealed himself as the, the Christ, that is the Messiah, the King of Israel. He's also the suffering Son of Man who comes to take up his cross. And both of these realities are coming true in Jerusalem. So in chapter 8, Jesus rode into Jerusalem to take the kingship and to suffer. Last week, we saw him arrive at the capital city where he made it the pronouncement that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, well, their role in God's vineyard, his covenant care and presence, well, now that would go to all the nations. For he is the beloved son of God, the Lord of Israel, who comes to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we arrive at our passage today. We'll be in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 44, and we'll have six points this morning. You'll note that the, the first three points, the religious leaders question Jesus, and then in the second three points, Jesus turns to address them. Uh, as Jesus, as we see this, we're to behold Christ's brilliance, his wisdom, as he parries all the different tests from all the different parties. He shows himself to be the Lord of the scriptures, the very wisdom of God. The main idea of our passage is simply this. Son of David and son of God. Jesus calls his followers to give their all for God. Son of David and son of God. Jesus calls his followers to give their all for God. 
So read with me, beginning in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher, You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. 
And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Amen. Well, our first point is found in verses 13 to 17. Government and God. In verse 13, we see this really odd pairing. Uh, You see the Pharisees and the Herodians have teamed up to trap Jesus in his talk. As we've seen repeatedly, they're not really interested in the truth about who Jesus is. What makes this pairing so interesting is that the Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. You see, the, the Pharisees were the religious purists, right? They wanted to promote Jewish custom and Jewish tradition. They didn't want to compromise with the Romans. Yet the Herodians are literally named after a guy who compromised Jewish and Roman ideals so that he could rule the Jews. I mean, they were all about compromising with the Roman state to gain power. I guess the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so you notice their words there in verse 14. They come to trap Jesus, and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Okay, just pause here for a second. Friends, do you see the irony behind this statement? Uh, The religious leaders are finally right about something. Namely, how different Jesus is from their own self-serving, hypocritical ways. Uh, They're the exact opposite of Jesus. Even as they try to flatter him and sway him by this opening salvo. Friends, praise God, there is no partiality with King Jesus. He never lies, never bends the truth. He doesn't cower before others. He doesn't prefer those of certain ethnicities or burn into the right families. Jesus doesn't live for the approval of others, and neither should we. You know, one of the ways you can tell that you're growing in Christ-likeness is that you are increasingly unimpressed by mere appearances. You don't alter your behavior to try to impress your audience. Uh, Kids, notice how Jesus doesn't live for the approval of others. Uh, This is hard for us, right? Whether kids or grown-ups, it's hard for all of us. Uh, We want our friends to like us, or our siblings, or our classmates. But be careful that that desire doesn't lead you to sin, uh, to cowering away from speaking the truth about who Jesus is, what it means to follow him. Uh, Beware of living for the opinions of others, whether young or old. And as a side note here, Trinity Church of Bedford, note that this godly indifference to others, to the opinions of others, is crucial to those who teach truly the way of God. I'm not referring to a proud disdain for godly advice. I'm not referring to that. 
But for those called to truly teach the way of God, nothing is more dangerous than a love of praise and recognition, a craving for approval, right? This is why Paul says in Galatians 1, for am I now seeking the approval of man or the approval of God? Am I seeking to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a slave of Christ. Brothers and sisters, in ministry, whether in preaching or in counseling or in evangelism or in discipleship, you and I can't teach the the truth of God, the way of God truthfully, if our main concern is what people think of us. Whether over coffee with a friend or sharing the gospel with a family member, uh, we need to not care about anyone's opinion so that we can winsomely and wisely teach God's way. Okay, well, with their flattery out of the way, uh, you see the Pharisees and Herodians ask at the end of verse 14, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or not? In this, they seem to have put Jesus in a dilemma, right? If he says, yes, pay your taxes, well, the Pharisees would be more than happy to inform the crowds that Jesus wants them to fork over their hard-earned money to the government. But of course, if he said, no, don't pay your taxes, well, then the Herodians would be quite happy to tell the Roman government about this guy named Jesus, this rebel. But Jesus' response is masterful, right? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? You see, these Pharisees and Herodians, they did care about other people's opinions. They were swayed by appearances. And so Jesus calls them out on it. He asks for a denarius, which is just a, the, kind of the, what you would earn for a day's labor. And they bring it to him. In verse 16, he asks, whose likeness is an, an inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Friends, I think this is the best comeback in all the Bible. I could be wrong. If you know something better, let me know. I'd be curious. Jesus' response is amazing. Repay, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. All right, so what's Jesus getting at here? Well, he's, he's talking about taxes, but he gives, you know, he gives a little bit of a, a, a seedling form of theology of state of government. So so first, notice that Caesar is legitimate. Jesus obviously wouldn't say, repay to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar if he thought Caesar was a fraud. As Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. This is what Dave led us in reading about our historic confession. Uh, that government is an authority instituted by God for the common good. Second, note that even governments marked by opposition to God's people and who actively promoted wickedness, Jesus still says we should submit to them and pay our taxes. You know, if you think about Caesar and the Roman government, uh, it was obviously not marked by Christian ideals, right? It was violent oppressive, it promoted slavery, it promoted idol worship, worship of Caesar, and yet Jesus says, pay your taxes. 
Uh, this means that we too should pay our taxes and submit to our government. Even though that same government sometimes opposes God's people and God's purposes. Right? So there is a place for armed rebellion, I think, uh, like in Nazi Germany. There is also a place, I think, for peaceful civil disobedience, like in the Jim Crow South. So I'm not saying that Christians always have to submit in every single circumstance. But ordinarily, Christians should pay their taxes and not be troublemakers to the government. Uh, We should note that I don't think Paul or Jesus had any expectation that Caesar would become a Christianized government. Uh, So this is just a little bit of a sidebar. Recently, some Christians have started reviving talks of Christian nationalism. Uh, that is enforcing Christian orthodoxy as legal code, or even theonomy, which is using the Old Testament as the laws of the land for the United States of America. We don't have time to get into all the details here. If you have questions, let me encourage you to talk to me after service. But in short, I don't think Jesus expects Caesar to enforce Christian orthodoxy. The point is that Christians, we see this in 1 Peter, Romans 13, 1 Timothy, the the way that Christians relate to the government is that Jesus wants the governing authorities to not trouble Christians, and he doesn't want Christians to trouble the governing authorities. If you have questions about this, what it means to advocate for our values in society, while not being a Christian nationalist or theonomist, come talk to me after service. In short, how should we render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's? What does that look, for, look like for us today in America? Well, we should pay our taxes. We should honor those for whom honor is due, as First Peter says. Uh, we shouldn't disparage elected officials or appointed officials, but we should pray for them, as First Timothy says. That's the first part of Jesus' response. Repay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The second thing Jesus says is repay to God the things that are God's. And this is incredible, right? Recall Jesus' logic in the first half of his response. The coin bears Caesar's image, so you should give it back to Caesar. Okay, friends, what bears God's image? All of us, humanity, our very lives, you and me and all of us were made in God's image, Because Caesar made the money and it bears his stamp, give him what he's owed. Because God made us and we bear his image and likeness, we give him what he's owed, which is our very lives, the totality of our being. Uh, Friends, the totality of your life has a banner over it. Made in heaven, God's. Do you live like that? Do you live in light of that, that your whole life is to be dedicated, repaid, rendered to God? This means that there is no part or portion of our life that is off limits to God. Right? We don't say, okay, I'll give to God my money, but not my sexuality. I'll give him my obedience, but not my affections. I'll give him my future, but not my present. Friends, you and I, because we bear God's image, are called to give our entire lives to God. That's Jesus' first confrontation. 
we turn to our second in verses 18 to 27, entitled, Deceived About the Dead. Here we find a different group of the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the religious supreme court of Israel, approach Jesus with their, their own theological knot to untie, right? So we just saw the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now we're seeing the Sadducees. You notice that they concoct this hypothetical story to try to prove that there, well, there obviously can be no resurrection from the dead. In verses 19-23, the Sadducees say, what if a man was married, but then he died? His wife gets remarried to his brothers seven times. They all die, including this woman. And then the punchline in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, Jesus, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You know, you can just hear them snickering in the background, right? Jesus responds in verse 24. Is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Guys, this is bold, it's like you and I walking up to Wall Street and being like, you guys don't know anything about finance. It's like showing up at the Oscars and saying, yeah, you guys know nothing about movie making. What do you think the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees did with their whole lives? All they did was study the scriptures. Beloved, do you know the scriptures? A mere acquaintance with the Bible is no guarantee of your apprehension of it. You can spend your whole life studying the Bible, yet have no saving knowledge of Jesus. Beloved, there are individuals and churches and denominations that are proof of this. These Sadducees, they also don't know the power of God. It seems the Sadducees thought the resurrection was too hard for God. Yet as Jesus said earlier, a few chapters ago, with God, all things are possible. So in verse 25, Jesus makes the point that in the resurrection, men and women are not married nor given in marriage, but are celibate like the angels in heaven. Why is this? It's because in heaven, that which marriage points to, namely Christ's relationship with the church, well, now that will be finally and fully on display. And so you won't need the pointer saying, look at that, because you'll just see it. It'll be evident. It's like the signs that say 60 miles until Disney World. You're not needing those signs when you're at Disney World. So it will be in the new heavens and new earth. Christ's people will fully be united to him and enjoying him for all eternity. And that's why the Sadducees' counterexample is so wrong. As for the fact that the dead are raised, in verses 26 and 27, Jesus cites Exodus 3 to prove his point. Uh, notice how God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The point is, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. For Yahweh to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in Moses' day, hundreds of years later, well, that meant that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not dead. They are alive. And so Jesus concludes, you are quite wrong. Uh, to translate that last phrase a little bit more literally, Jesus says, you are very deceived. 
Friends, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I wonder how that sounds to you. Perhaps you came and you thought that Jesus promotes non-judgmentalism. The truth is that Jesus was very dogmatic about the possibility and the severity of theological error. I wonder what steps you're taking to ensure that you are not mistaken and deceived. Well, third and finally, in this first half, we come to verses 28 to 34, entitled, A Master Scribe. Uh, This section is notable because it's not as hostile as the first two encounters, and it involves the final sect of this Sanhedrin, this Jewish Supreme Court, as one of the scribes approaches Jesus. You note his more sincere question in verse 28. Which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus goes to Deuteronomy 6 for his answer. He replies in verse 29, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, notice that before you can get to the most important command, namely how you should live and love, Jesus wants you to know a most important truth, namely who God is. Do you notice that Jesus doesn't start with Deuteronomy 6, 5, love God. Before he gets to this most important command, he wants the people to know who God is, that God is one, undivided and supreme, that Yahweh, the Lord, is undivided. He's not in a pantheon of gods. He's not competing with other deities. While other nations worship false gods, Israel's God is the true God who had redeemed them and saved them. And it's in light of that theological truth that then Jesus gets to the most important command, right? It's not supposed to stop at theological head knowledge, but it's supposed to overflow into a life of love. You see, even the demons believe. Even the demons have right doctrine. They know that God is one. They know the truth about who Jesus is, about who God is, but they don't love him. That is the defining mark and characteristic of God's people, a kind of genuine affection expressing itself in tangible actions for God. Brothers and sisters, it is the truth of who God is that he's made you, that he loves you, that he's saved you, that now should stir up your praise and adoration and love. Uh, Put another way, how do we repay to God the things that are God's? How do we render to God that which is his? Well, we love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might, with all our strength. Jesus wants us to understand that the entirety of our being should be devoted to God. These are kind of synonymous, heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they, you know, they do highlight different areas. The heart is the command center of human thinking and willing and desiring. It's the core of who we are. The soul is the part of us that intends to, is intended to know and obey God. We should love him with our minds. Christianity is not a mindless religion. We should use our intellects for the glory of God, to love him. And we should use our strength. We should steward and spend our bodies 
for his purposes and his service. You know, I hate cliches. So I'm going to say something, and you're just, you know. It's a cliche that Christianity isn't a religion. It's a relationship. Friends, it's actually mostly true. It is kind of a religion. Sociologically, it's a religion. But it is about a relationship. Friends, the first and greatest thing that God wants from you is your love. Not external obedience, external show, not begrudging obedience. He wants your affections. Because that's what he shows you, right? He lavishes his love upon you. He doesn't do begrudging good to you. No, he loves you. And he wants you to then reflect that love back up to him. This means, brothers and sisters, that sanctification is not primarily, primarily, about putting off old desires or killing old habits and starting new and godly ones. No, it is about growing in our affections for Christ. Because for all eternity, what are we going to be up to? We won't have any sin to kill, any old habits to put off. But day by day, for all eternity, we will be growing in our love for God in Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be swept up into that love. And so we begin that process of sanctification and glorification now as we grow in our affections. And when that happens, well, then all the practicalities of sanctification begin to fall into place. But then in verse 31, Jesus gives this guy a freebie, right? He had just asked for the most important command. And then Jesus says, I'll give you two for the price of one. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. Okay, why does Jesus give this second most important command? Why couldn't he just leave it at love God? Friends, because you can't love God if you don't love those made in his image. You don't love him if you don't love your neighbor. Those commands are so intertwined and interrelated that it is a fool's errand to try to untangle them. 1 John 4, 20 and 21 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You know, it'd kind of be like me saying, I love my kids, and then turning around and smashing their Lego creations. I mean, I'd be the worst dad ever, right? Because if I really loved them, I would love what they made. I would love how their personality and care and attention found expression in this creation, in their creation. And so it is with God. He made us, and so if we love him, we'll love what he's made. We'll love who he's made. This scribe incredibly agrees with Jesus and says in verse 33 that to love him and love one's neighbor 
as oneself as much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. To which Jesus responds, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Friends, and make no mistake, you're either in or you're out of the kingdom of God. But you can be closer or farther, depending on your understanding of God's priorities. Uh, For this scribe, he realized that it wasn't on external obedience or worship attendance or obligatory sacrifices that God had prioritized, but a heart of love. And so Trinity Church of Bedford, as you serve God and as you serve one another, uh, be sure to do it from a heart of love. Friends, let's turn to our second, briefer half of the text, where Jesus turns to address the religious leaders. We see our fourth point in verses 35 to 37, uh, David's son, yet David's Lord. The various groups of the Sanhedrin had tried various pop quizzes of Jesus to try to stump him. He parried their attacks. Now it's Jesus' turn to pose the question. You see in verse 35, it says, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How is he his son? Again, we're reminded that Jesus understands Scripture better than anyone else. And here's the really interesting thing. He could have talked about any topic to school these religious leaders. Yet here, the one question that he brings up is related to the identity of the Christ. Right? I mean, he could have asked them if Adam and Eve had belly buttons. He could have quizzed them on the specifications and dimensions of the temple. But where does he laser in, zero in on? Who is the Christ, the King of Israel? Is he David's son or is he David's Lord? It's as if his private conversation with the disciples back in chapter 8 of who do you say that I am? Well, it's now going public. Do you all, the crowd, understand who the Christ is? You know, part of the reason they had so misunderstood who Jesus is is that they misunderstood who the Christ would be. So Jesus cites Psalm 110, what Mark read for us earlier in the service, which says that Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, said to my Lord, David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Uh, The basic thrust of Jesus' question is there in verse 37. If If the Christ is supposed to be David's son, that means he's David's lesser. But then why does, Jesus, why does David call him Lord as if he's greater? Well, friends, the truth is just what we saw in previous weeks, right? The Christ is standing right in front of them. And that Christ is not only David's son, he is also David's Lord, for he is Israel's Lord. He is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the son of David according to the flesh. And he's the son of God from all eternity. He is truly God and truly man. Come to save his people from their sins. This is what as Christians we come to celebrate every Sunday, every week. We don't gather together around an especially impressive Jewish rabbi. 
Uh, We don't gather together merely in the service of a long-awaited human king. We come to worship the Son of God made flesh. That is who Jesus is. As we've seen all along, that's what Jesus is most concerned about. Showing who he is. That's what this whole gospel is about. Who is Jesus? For the crowds, though they heard him gladly, they still have not grasped who Jesus truly is. So we come to our fifth section in verse 38 to 40, entitled, Beware Pride. You know, here we see a negative example of desiring to be first. You remember a few chapters ago, Jesus would say that whoever would be great among you must be slave and servant of all. If you want to be first, be last. Yet here these scribes, well, they loved being first. They loved being served and getting applause. Right? Verses 38 and 39 paint for us a picture of religious self-righteousness and self-satisfaction. They like being seen as important, being well thought of and respected. They like the box seats at all the important social functions. In their religious duties, they like being seen. Verse 40 really shines a light on their wickedness. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. You see, they don't love neighbor. They're even willing to take advantage of widows. And they don't love God. Their prayers are but a pretense of godliness. And so the result is that they will receive the greater condemnation. Friends, make no mistake, there are worse judgments from God. For there are worse sins. And religious hypocrisy is one of the worst. How how should Jesus' disciples respond to this? Well, it's that opening word of verse 38. Beware. Watch out, lest you become like them, lest their example lead you to thinking that their behavior is okay. Watch out, lest they lead you to condemnation. Brothers and sisters, these scribes long for and yearn after approval and applause, especially in the religious sphere. For you and I, for those who serve for those in the church, for those who do religious things, there is a danger. There is a danger of serving not for the glory of God, not for the good of others, but for the approval of the accolades that we ourselves might receive. Uh, Pray for me, pray for Dave, pray for all of those leading and serving, uh, that all of us would not be marked by this kind of hypocrisy, this kind of vainglory that we see the scribes show. Let's turn now to our sixth and final section, verses 41 to 44, entitled, She Gave Her All. Jesus sits down in the temple, and he's witnessing people put money into the offering box. Literally translated, verse 41 states that many rich put in much. That's the scene. Many rich put in much. But then contrast that with verse 42. And one poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus summoned his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more 
than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Oh, friends, this widow is like the sick, the children, blind Bartimaeus, unimportant according to the world's standards, but anything other than insignificant in Jesus's eyes. I mean, Jesus' statement is kind of nonsensical, right? She has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. I mean, Jesus, this is objectively false. Like you're just wrong. Well, Jesus doesn't count the way we count. Jesus' priorities are different than our priorities. While we tend to view things externally, Jesus prioritizes her, her willingness to sacrifice. As one commentator put it, for Jesus, the value of a gift is not the amount given, but the cost to the giver. Uh, this is why Trinity, a church meeting their budget is generally pretty unhelpful in figuring out whether or not they've been faithful to God in their giving. Okay? So, as an FYI, since this church started in April, by God's grace, praise God, uh, we give about double what the internal projected giving was. So in March, I sat down with Dane and Curtis, and we're like, how much do we think the budget will be? Because of your giving, we have about double of that. Praise God. Yet it doesn't really matter that much. Because you can be greedy and selfish, and we could, we could meet our budget, right? Conversely, you, you could be filled with love and generosity and sacrifice. Well, because of the Lord's providence, we meet half our budget. So I just want you to know that as your pastor, we're going to roll out the budget, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, the next month and a half or so. That budget, if we meet it, that'd be great. I hope we meet it. I care much more that you and I that we have hearts of generosity and sacrifice. We don't want to be like these rich people, right? Giving money, but not actually trusting the Lord. Uh, we want to be like this widow, giving our all to follow Jesus. She's giving not because it was easy, but because she loved God. Her finances were a window into her heart. And thus far from giving just a few coins, she has done what Jesus has been saying all along. She has given her all to God. Friends, have you given your whole life to God? I wonder how that's evident in your life. I wonder how that's evident in your budget. Uh, the book of Proverbs talks about the wisdom of storing up wealth for the future. I don't think Jesus is saying in this one particular example that saving is always wrong. I don't think he's saying that at all. I do think he's saying that generosity and sacrificial generosity is what should mark his people. What does your budget reveal about your priorities? You know, in all of this, from our whole passage today, Jesus has been summoning us to give our all to following God, hasn't he? As those who bear God's image, as the Lord our God. We should love him. We should depend upon him entirely. 
Yet, as usual, Jesus is not hurling down commands from his mighty throne, but rather calling us to follow him and follow his example. For consider how Jesus, how his life was devoted to God. He fully and completely loved God, always doing what is right, loving his neighbor entirely. And yet he didn't do so in vain, hypocritical, self-glorying pride, but in genuine humility and service of others. And then he displayed that love and its apex by dying for the sins of his people. And then, of course, he was raised from the dead, much to the Sadducees' chagrin. So that to whoever will come to David's son, yet David's Lord, he now offers pardon and eternal life. Friends, as we conclude, have you entrusted your all to following Jesus? He is the one who has given his all for us, and now we respond by giving our lives entirely to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that though we fail to live for your glory so often, you are merciful and forgiving. You don't treat us as our sins deserve. Righteousness and justification comes through your son. We praise you for that. We pray that you'd help us to hold generously the money that you give us. We pray that you'd help us to not be hypocritical and vainglorying and proud in our service of others. We pray that we would know who Christ is, that we'd love God and love neighbor, that we'd long for the resurrection, that we'd give our all to following Jesus. Help us, Father. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we get to conclude by singing, my worth is not in what I own. As we meditate and rejoice in this truth that our value is fixed, our ransom paid at the cross, that's what we glory in. That's what we love supremely. Let's stand together as we sing, my worth is not in what I own.